what are the Beatitudes? How does Jesus' use of the word bless differ from our understanding? How do the Beatitudes challenge our morality? What influence should the Beatitudes have on the Christian life? Chris sits down with special guest Rogelio Rodriguez, and they discuss these questions and more on this episode of Your Church Friends. All right, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris, and today I have the privilege and honor to sit with one of my closest and dearest friends, Rogelio Roger Rodriguez Jr. Did I Nailed it. Nailed it. All three of them. Uh, we like to call him Triple R in our circuit. Boom. I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, it's funny because Calvary was my first real church home. And in Calvary, I was Roger Rodriguez. And over the years, I've now gone by my full name, Rogelio Rodriguez, the junior stone in just for fun. But man, it, it's been such a long time since I've gotten to connect with my Calvary family. So, dude, I'm just so pumped to be doing this with you. So tell us about what you're doing now. So uh, where you're at, what you're doing. So that way, you know, it seems like you have some sort of street cred with the, the people listening when you give your input on these questions. Sweet. So mainly I'm gaining weight uh, in quarantine right now <laughs> and losing sleep because we have a, a three-month-old baby. But when I'm not gaining weight and losing sleep, I'm the adult ministries and operations pastor at Parkcrest Christian Church in Long Beach. So Parkcrest is actually the church uh, I went to when I left Calvary. And one of the things that happened that I think is really important is Calvary was so formative for not just me, my wife, Rachel Rodriguez, we met at Calvary. We, we always tell people about how we met at Fuel, right? The, the college and young adults ministry. Uh, she was serving smoothies at the bar and I was doing whatever I could to just talk to her for a few minutes. So I'd buy a smoothie every week and, and hang out with her. But when we left Calvary, I think we were in this space of life where we just burnt out. We were doing so much. We were really exhausted. We felt um, confused. I was still in school. We weren't engaged because uh, I couldn't even afford a ring at the time. I mean, we were, we had been dating for, I think at that time, four years. And so we were just trying to figure life out. So when we wound up at Parkcrest, um, we got engaged shortly after. Uh, I ended up graduating from Biola. Not too long after that, we got married. But then my church life, and I would say more importantly, my work life is what really transformed. So in, in church, I kind of got back into the swing of serving right away. Uh, we got into a home community, which is like a small group. We got into a small group uh, after being there for two weeks. We started serving however we could. Um, after, I think, about three months, we were invited to lead a, a home community. So we started doing that. And so we just started saying yes to serving opportunities, which to me taught me the burnout wasn't because we were doing too much ministry. I think the burnout was more about our hearts and what was going on. So while we're, we're serving and we're building relationships in, at Parkcrest, the thing that really started transforming was the way I viewed my work life. So at the time, I was trying to get different positions as a pastor. My goal was to be a pastor professionally. And I had gone through three different interviews. The last one taken three months I was told multiple times I was like the the number one candidate. I was going to nail this thing. It was going to be awesome. And after like three and a half months, uh, I didn't get it. And so I just was really disheartened and confused about what God wanted me to do with my life. And so it was right around that season that uh, I talked to Mike Goldsworthy, the pastor back then at Parkrest, about just advice. Like, how do I figure this pastor thing out? What, should I go back to school? Should I, you know, should I get a different degree? 
And he just told me that um, I should enter. He's like, dude, do you even know why you want to be a pastor? And then we had a long conversation about that. So I interned at Parkrest for a year. So I worked one day a week at Parkrest. Uh, I was able to put my 40-hour work week into four days at the hotel because that's what I was doing professionally. And for that year, what I learned was I was doing just as much and in often uh, in situations, better ministry at the hotel than I was doing at the church. At the church, I was doing kind of the, the stuff you do as a, as a lay pastor and minister. You're praying with people, you're connecting with people, but I was doing the same stuff in the hotel world. But with the people in the hotel world, I was talking to, the, the majority of people I was talking to did not know Jesus. Whereas in the church world, I was mainly connecting with other Christians. And so in that season, Mike and I would have regular conversations. And he started telling me, do you realize that uh, you're just as much a pastor in the hotel as you are at the church? And that really transformed my, honestly, my attitude, my, my heart for living in Christ likeness in all places, right? And that transferred to home and my relationship with my family. So uh, oddly enough, after about a year and a half of really committing myself to being a hotel pastor, which I, w- I will totally validate, I interviewed for positions in the hotel world. And when I was asked what I wanted to do in the hotel world, I said, I want to be a hotel pastor. And people ate that up. They, I mean, because I think, one, I think they realized this dude's probably going to be cheap because he doesn't like, he's not doing it for the money. But two, uh, I think they recognize that the hospitality industry is all about care and concern for people and loving people well. And those are the things I valued most. So uh, yeah, after about a year and a half of really taking the hotel pastor thing seriously, uh, I actually was uh, invited to take on a position at the church as a pastor. And so back then I was the, like a connections pastor, like a small groups pastor, uh, and I was trying to kind of play both worlds for a little bit, but ended up diving into the pool. And now I've been a Parkrest. I've gotten a few different promotions and position changes. Uh, so I've been there, in eight, I think, for two and a half years now uh, as a pastor, as a paid pastor. Prior to that, I also was an elder for a year and a half. That's a long journey. Yeah, it's wordy. It's wordy for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we had been talking and, and I told you like, hey, we're doing the podcast and, and me and you talk on the phone here and there. And we were, I was telling you, you, you just... We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are tearing this thing apart. I'm learning so much as we're doing it. And then we started talking about the Beatitudes. And you thought, oh, can we do that? And I was like, man, that's episode one. We're, we're already <laughs> way past that. Been there, baby. Been there. So now that this will be, I, I believe, episode 27, I'm calling it just the Beatitudes Revisited. So me and you are going to just crush through this. I'm going to ask you some questions and we'll talk through it. But just to take a good look at the Beatitudes one more time so that way we could get for everyone listening and for ourselves, some good clarity on what Jesus was really doing as he approached this Sermon on the Mount. So you ready for question one? Yeah. I, one thing I'll, I'll caveat is I might not give you clarity on this thing, but I just hope to give you a different perspective on it. Because I do think um, listening back to those episodes, which uh, I'm Latino, so you got to expect me to be late, right? So I'm going to show up at episode 27 and do this thing. <laughs> but uh, I think the... Uh, there's a lot of good stuff that's already been said. So I definitely don't need to, there's a lot of ground that has already been covered. I just hope to be able to offer a different perspective on, on the Beatitudes that I really hope will be helpful to people. Yeah, as long as you're not getting into any heresy type stuff, we should be good. Well, we shall have to wait and see. 
<laughs> we might have to scrap this episode. <laughs> right. Episode 27 is a no-go. No-go. Yeah. All right, let's get to the first question because I know you got you to gotta think it in a little bit. So what are the Beatitudes? I would say the Beatitudes, first and foremost, are a testament that God sees hurting people and that they matter to him and that he cares for them. And And I mean... The reason that matters so much, that feels like a simple thought, but you think about the way we normally interpret the Beatitudes, even the way we teach the Beatitudes, we don't look at it through the lens of Jesus seeing people. We look at it through, the, through this lens of like a checklist that we need to follow. And I think changing that perspective has such an impact on the way we work to live that out. It is just completely different. But when Jesus starts this conversation it's because he looks into the faces of the people in the crowd, right? He could have taught his disciples this lesson at any point. He could have gotten into it. But it was when Jesus looks into the faces of the masses, these people who are hurting and looking for a Messiah, they're looking for an answer. Some of them were just looking for a meal. Jesus sees their faces and he offers these words. And I think that is the most important piece. That's the most important element when we read the Beatitudes. It's the idea that this is a story about God seeing people who are hurting and him committing to caring for them. And that should matter to us. They should matter to us. We shouldn't look inward when we read the Beatitudes. We should look outward and, and, and ask ourselves, am I loving the people? Am I seeing the people? Am I empathizing with the people the way Jesus did? A lot of what we've been talking about, too, especially because I think a lot of times we look at the Bible and we're reading it and it's always introspective, like uh, I'm David in this story or I'm so-and-so in the story. And I think a lot of times, too, we, we tend to have the tendency to look at things as like, I'm always the better character. Yep. But, you know, we never look at ourselves as like Nebuchadnezzar or any of the other like non-good characters, King Saul. But yeah, We're never Babylon. We're never Babylon. But... What really what Jesus is doing here is, is I like what you said, he's making us look at it not from an introspective standpoint, but saying, hey, this is this is how my people from my kingdom need to act. So when he comes into the Beatitudes, it's blessed are, oh, everyone wants to be happy. Happiness is a thing that people want from then to now. And they understood that term. But then he comes in poor in spirit. Yeah. Well, and even then, right, the first thing we should we should not jump to. This is how I need to act because of what I just heard. The first thing Jesus does is he sees people. So you think about what that means. What's the implication of that? How am I supposed to respond to what Jesus is saying? I should probably look in the faces of the people Jesus is looking at. When we hear these words and we say, oh, Jesus is telling me to be more meek. Jesus is telling me to be a peacemaker. We're, we're forgetting who Jesus was talking about. So instead of looking inward, look. Before you even decide what am I going to do about it, look in the faces of the people around him. I, I put down here in my notes, when you look at Matthew 25, this is Jesus talking, right? He says, he gives this parable, says, uh, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we read this, how often do we say, um, I should be these things? 
I, I should try and be uh, cold. You know, I should try and be sick. I should try and be in prison. We don't do that. We realize that Jesus is talking about other people. And he's calling, he's telling us the way you validate your love, the way you validate the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, which simply means inherit eternity with the Lord, right? The way you validate that is by loving others. It's by facing outward, not inward. And I think the Beatitudes, if you read it through that lens, again, you're not trying to ask yourself, how do I be more meek? How do I be a peacemaker? How do I have a pure heart? I think those things are not the point. The point is that there are people who are not just practicing being these things. There are people who are living these things day in and day out. And do we see them? And do we love them enough to do something about that? About that? Do we care enough to act on that? I, when you were talking about it, I kind of remembered as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount when uh, he sums up everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And it's really when we think of that that verse, you know, it's put yourself in their situation, take myself out of my situation and put myself in theirs. So it's almost kind of what you're saying, that perspective of like, before we go into anything, looking at other people and seeing what they need, seeing where they're at, and how can we be those things for those people before just saying, hey, I, I you know, I, I'm going to be this way because that's the way I'm going to be, you know, like, Actually look at people in their heart, see what they need, see how we can help them before we actually start jumping the gun into, into anything because that's what Jesus is starting off here, right? He's rolling with blessed are those, happy are those. If you want to be happy, and I like this thought, it, it came in with uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when I hunger and thirst for righteousness, my, I will be happy because of not chasing after happiness. I'm happy because of chasing after righteousness. And so with that, we have us looking at how can I be righteous? Well, help other people, do things for the people, go after the people who are poor in spirit because they need your help. And so, yeah, I really like that point of putting it more outwardly before inwardly. Yeah. And again, I mean, you, you said it, right? Like the idea of practicing, I think one of the, when we make this a checklist to live a holy life, that's super convenient for us because we get to use the list when we want to, and we get to not use it when the other thing is, who judges that list? I don't know about you, but when I read these things as a checklist, I also am usually my own judge. Yep. And so I'm my own measuring rod. So, so that is just super convenient because you can do all of that from your couch. You never have to leave your house. It's like the seven-minute abs thing, right? Like the quick way to have abs. Dude, there is no quick way to have abs. There is no easy way to live out the Beatitudes because I think the Beatitudes are not about an easy way to, to become a holy person. It's not a checklist like that. It's not like the, you know, the, the Ten Commandments. And even the Ten Commandments, when Israel received the Ten Commandments, they took these, these things as a checklist and they tried their best to live them out. And how many times do we see Jesus and, and, and the prophet saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, right? So Jesus is the one who's showing us. The laws show us that we need God. I love uh, Isaiah 49 opens up with this idea that you formed me in my mother's womb, right? I, I'm, I'm some, nothing but a, but a finite servant to you. And my strength comes from the Lord. You think about what that's saying. There's this idea that this was never meant to be a checklist. It, if anything, it's a heart check. You can look at these things and you can ask yourself, who do I know that is that? Who do I know 
who is poor in spirit? Who do I know who is mourning? And what am I doing about it? Yeah, that's a good point too. The checklist thing and the the six minute abs. Seven minute abs. Seven minute abs. You can't get you can't get your heart rate up in six minutes. <laughs> I was thinking, you know how we do all those silly commercials. So I was like, man, can I do like a seven minute seven minute holiness? Do it. Get get holy in seven minutes. All right. Next question: uh, How does Jesus use the word "blessed" differ from our understanding of "blessed"? The main difference for me is when Jesus talks about blessed here, he's implying relationship, he's implying empathy, he's implying care. The way we interpret that and teach that and practice that is about reward for work and behavior. And those are totally different. Again, one is outward facing, one is inward facing. And I'm not saying it's not helpful. I think it is helpful for me to reflect on my life and ask myself, am I being a peacemaker or am I just fighting with everyone? Am I being meek or am I just a loud mouth who, who's a bragger and just wants to hear my own voice? Those are important things to ask yourself, but that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus is talking about blessing, he, again, he's seeing people and he's making a commitment to them. He's talking about how you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and when you think about what Jesus is actually saying, I think it's important to ask yourself, how is he going to pull that off? Because yeah. my understanding, well, I was just saying, my understanding is that we are the body of Christ. I think Jesus made a commitment as the, as the head of the church that the body is meant to live out. And we, when we turn this thing into, uh, it's about my work, it's about my behavior. And if I do well, I get this reward, this attaboy, and I feel good about myself. But it never requires me to actually go out and do stuff for others, to care for others, to follow through on the, the promise that Jesus makes to these people. I started thinking when you were talking about it, that the idea of like, I know whenever I'm in a low spot, the best thing or the quickest way that I find like this inner happiness or joy is by helping someone out. Like how quickly does your attitude change when you're, you're helping someone else, someone else out? And a lot of people said it like, you know, if you're going through something, help someone else out because then you don't focus on what you're going through so much which is a good Absolutely. thought in philosophy. But when you put it in a biblical standards, it is God saying, you don't worry about you. You take care of them and I'll take care of you. And, and that's kind of that relationship that we should have with, with other people's. I'm not going to worry about me because as we continue on through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, don't worry about this or that. But look after others. Do things with the right motives. Do things with the right heart and the purest of intentions. Then you're doing counterculture here, alternative culture. Where our culture says, go take care of you, look after number one, do that first. Jesus is here saying like out the gate, like, hey, I want you to focus on other people and I'll take care of you. So that, that when you were saying yeah. that, that all came into my head right now. When you think about what Jesus tells us when, when uh, he talks about the birds, right? They, they don't deal with anxiety. They don't have to worry. They have this just even like a... Uh, beyond cognizant trust that the Lord is going to provide. They just know it's going to happen, right? But we don't have that all the time. We, we get so wrapped up in what we want and, and what we're concerned with that uh, we lose sight of that. The other thing that you said, right, like this idea of like the, the happy life. I don't know about the happy, happy life so much, but like you look at John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus talks about a fulfilled life, and a fulfilled life is not self-centered. A fulfilled life is outward-facing. 
And even when you talk about, I agree with you, when you're feeling down and you, you are able to engage someone and serve someone, there is this happiness, even though your pain doesn't go away. And it's not saying that your pain doesn't matter. It just simply says that we are meant to do life together. And there is this supernatural experience that we get to share that can only happen in community when you get beyond yourself. The other thing is it doesn't just happen in the high, in the high moment. Highs and lows. When Jesus says mourn with those who mourn, you think about someone going to celebrate recovery for the first time. People who show up to celebrate recovery day one are not there because it's the best day of their life. They're not showing up because they just got married or they just had a kid. They're showing up because they're about to get divorced. They've relapsed. They're at, the, they're at rock bottom. And through this space, they can confess something to people who will look at them with eyes of love, no matter what they say, no matter what comes out of their mouth. And you'd think something like that might give people trauma. You know, you think about like PTSD from hearing all these really hard and ugly parts about people's lives, always hearing day in and day out about people's worst day. But the reality is there is something so healing about confession. There's something so good about that. And that is only by the grace of God that we can come to other people. We can confess the highest of highs and the lowest of lows with community and God uses that to heal and to reconcile not only us, but the pe- the world around us. We have chickens. You guys got the chickens, right? Yeah, buddy. Yeah, we Best got the pen chickens. In the world. Yeah. Best pet in the world right there, man. No better egg than a chicken egg that's fresh. Uh, Amen. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you guys have this problem with your feeder. We do. That little birds will come in and eat it. And so like little birds will come in through the, the grates of our coop and, and they'll go in there and they'll start eating it. And man, these birds... They found their food. They didn't worry about it the day before. They didn't think what's going to happen. God took care of them. So when you were saying that, I really, I thought about that because I watch them and I get frustrated sometimes because I'm like, stop eating the food we're paying for. But in that sense, it's God providing for them and they're, they're doing that. And in, in the same way, when we start doing things to help other people, like God provides for us so much. He takes care of us. He looks out after us because he sees that our heart is about other people and not so much about ourselves. And, and I think that's, that's one of the big things that as Christians, we need to get over because you're right. When someone comes into something and they're at their lowest of lows, the church is a beautiful place for, for someone to put their arm around you. And then you feel so much better. I, I remember just this, I, uh, when, when we came back to, to Calvary here, like I, I was at one of my lowest of lows spiritually and internally, and just the embrace we got from uh, the pastor, Ken, who, who just took me in and said, Hey, I see a damaged person. Let me help you out here. What that really did to me in my life and how much that changed and, and where I'm at today now, like doing all the stuff that we're doing. So it is, I think it is that looking for that person to really help them, to put our arm around them, to be that embrace. Because yeah, the, that list of the blessed are, there ain't nothing really good on that list. I mean, it's persecution. It, other than like those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's a good thing. But it's, there's not a lot of good things as far as like a plus, you know, it's a lot of mourning, poor in spirit, persecution. That's someone when they're at their hurting. And so blessed are those because they will get this when we start loving them, when we start caring for them and showing them that, hey, God's here and he's got you. I really like this perspective of it, looking at it from the looking outward before inward right now. I mean, one of the things I think is helpful is as you read the Beatitudes, close your eyes for a few minutes before you start reading. Take a deep breath so you're present. And just start imagining the faces of a crowd. You know, any crowd you've been in, I think, is, is fine. Obviously, we wouldn't know the faces of the people who are there. But you imagine standing in front of a crowd 
because for me, that helps get my head right and my heart right to recognize the words I'm about to read are about me loving people. It's not about me making myself better, right? Because we recognize the transformation we want is not self-control. The, self, the, the transformation we want is strictly by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God working in us. That's what produces transformation, at least the kind we want to see in our lives. When we read this thing as a checklist, we switch right back into what the Pharisees did, right? They make it a checklist about how I become the holiest person in the room. And it's in the same conversation that Jesus tells uh, his followers, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the religious teachers. And again, you think about his disciples, the way they responded to that, right? They were awestruck. They, they felt like there's, that's just not possible. No, I don't think it would be possible for them to do it the way the Pharisees were doing it. But that's because Jesus wasn't telling them to go and make a checklist of this thing. He wasn't telling them to go and try to become the perfect model of Christ by doing these things. He was telling them, it's not about you. Your time of devotion to the Lord is not about being self-centered. It's about the Lord. And in the same way, your life should not be self-centered. It's about loving God and loving others. And in that way, you live a fulfilled life that, that lives out what God values most. Uh, let's get into question number three, because I know we're running short on time here. How does this list, the Beatitudes, differ from what the world tells us a happy life looks like? Hey, before you answer that question, we just want to take the time and say thank you to all the listeners. Thank you for listening to our podcast and journeying with us on our first season. We have a lot more in store, so continue to listen and share our podcast with all your friends. As always, check out our website, yourchurchfriends.rocks. Why? Because we rocks. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube page. We have some quick five-minute videos that take us through Philippians and more. Finally, if you have any questions or ideas for future shows, email us at yourchurchfriends at gmail.com. That's yourchurchfriends at gmail.com. Your Church Friends podcast is available on all podcasting platforms. Leave us a five-star review and subscribe. Now let's get back to that question. Uh, I mean, we were just kind of talking about that, right? You think yeah. about when, when we respond to the attitudes by turning inwards, you know, like the whole like, oh, I should really be more meek, that kind of thing. Then we're missing the point. One, you know, one of the things I wrote here was uh, if you read a story about children who are starving, right? And you read about what's happening. Oh, here's one. You, you watch the news or you read about the families who at the border who are not being allowed to come into our country and the horrible stuff that they're going through, how they're, they're hungry and they're cold and they're not being cared for very well. And they're in like immediate danger every single day. What does it look like for the Christian to hear that and say, wow, I really eat, should eat three meals today. I really should make sure I lock my doors today. I really should, you know, wear, have extra blankets, turn the heater up so I'm comfortable tonight. No, because that's not the point. The point isn't to hear this story about this, this, this community of people who are hurting and then say, how do I avoid facing that? How do I look to God to, to, to serve me in this space so that I don't have to be in that situation, you would think about, man, how do I help those people? How do I care for people well, right? And that's what that's one of the biggest, again, I think there's a lot of good that can come out of the way we have normally taught this. But one of the really ugly things is we make it about us. We, we make it inward facing. Uh, it is about self-development rather than the grace of God manifest through his body, right? And it's just, 
dude, just straight up, this is not about you. That's what, if that's what you got to tell yourself when you read the Beatitudes, then go ahead and say that out loud before you start reading, because it's about you realizing God sees and loves these people, and so should you. I think when we look at it, too, one of the things that's really challenged me is that this isn't a list of comfort. Kind of what I was talking about before I got into the question, like this isn't a list of comfort. I'm not going to be comfortable when I have to be meek and I don't want to be, when I have to mourn, when I'm poor in spirit, when I have to show mercy and I'd rather not, when I have to be a peacemaker, but I'd rather attack. It's not a thing about comfort or my comfort level. And, and the problem that I see uh, that we as a, a Western culture face is that we're comfortable. And because I'm comfortable, I'm okay. And I stop looking at the people around me and I stop looking at the people who are in need and I stop looking at the people who desperately need some sort of anything to get them to the next day because I'm comfortable. It's allowed me to just be a comfortable Christian who's just coasting through things. And, yeah. and I really loved your point about like, yeah, well, I'm warm and I'm, I'm taken care of and I eat three meals a day, but we, we just stop focusing on everybody else because our focus is so much inward. And I, Dude, again, yeah. I'm really digging this kind of concept of like, let's look at it outwardly before we go, even before we start saying, hey, okay, maybe I've got a temper issue and I need to be more of a peacemaker. Let's start looking outwardly and saying, how can I help those around me live in a peaceful environment yeah. when and they have no peace? Totally. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely, dude. When, and that's, that's the point, right? When there are people around me who have no peace, because if, if there was a person who exemplified all of those things, their name would be Joe. I mean, literally, dude, who do you know that checks all those boxes? Jesus wasn't looking at one person and he wasn't looking at his disciples. There were, he was, he was identifying different people in the crowd and without them having to tell him, he knew their plight. He knew their suffering. And he was telling his disciples, I see them. I'm here with, in this moment with them and I want to do something about it. And we as followers of Christ, we want to go and do the same. But when you think about what this looks like for the church today, when we read this list and we make it about us, man, how do we look to people inside of the church? When we start, I mean, it kind of looks like a pity party, right? When we start saying like, oh my goodness, we're persecuted. How has the church looked when we're making it about us instead of making it about the people outside? I, I, saw, I saw this video, I mean, it was a couple of weeks ago. But there was this woman who was at a protest and she walked up to a police officer and starts talking to him about police brutality and how the system needs to change. The, the thing that was really uncomfortable about it was she was a white woman and he was a black man. So the officer was a black man. And this white woman is telling this officer, because you're an officer, you don't know what it's like to, to be a victim. You don't know how hard the system is on these people. And he didn't respond to her at all. He just was very polite, kind of nodded his head said, yep, no, I hear you, I hear you. He didn't really want to engage. Then when she walked away, uh, the person with the camera asked him, like, how did that feel? He's like, how do you think it feels when a white person is telling me a black man about black people's persecution? He's like, dude, it is, it is not binary. It's not black and white. So don't play the victim, right? And again, when you make it about yourself, you're making it about what you are experiencing and what you're going through. And again, that's not the point. The point is that you're looking outwardly and, and you're, you're dedicating yourself to doing something about it. You're dedicating your life to being the hands and feet of Jesus and, and caring for people and, and fulfilling the promises he makes, right? Again, this, this theme that's running through consistently for me is just this idea of we're comfortable. 
and we think uh, someone censoring us on on social media is persecution. We think someone right. someone not wanting to be our friend because we're a Christian is persecution. We think the, these things are persecution. We have no idea what it is to actually have our lives at risk for the sake of the kingdom of God, and to but be that's put what in you that try position. To do. Again, when you look at when you read that list and you hear the, those who you know blessing those who pers- who are persecuted in my name, you almost go out looking for ways to be persecuted so that you can check that box on the list. But mm-hmm. that's not the point because that's not the comparison you're supposed to make. It's supposed to get you to look around and say, "Man, who do I know? Whether I am in physical proximity to them or not, are there Christians throughout the world, which we know there are, who are hurting and persecuted for the name of Christ? What can I do to care for them?" What can I do to love them? What's the promise God makes to them, right? And how can I be a small part of fulfilling that promise? All right, I'm going to move on to that. We could keep going all day at this, but I'm going to move on to the next question because I see we're running low on time and we've only got through 306. So so how does the Beatitudes change our morality? Um, I would say they don't hinge our morality on self-development, right? I mean, I, when I was at Biola, dude, I loved it. I loved my professors. I loved what I was learning. But so much of it was about study, learning more, learning different languages, right? Trying to figure out what, what the context is, what's the history. And when we focus all of that time on ourselves, man, you just, how much practice are you actually doing, right? You know, what Jesus means is he's talking about you practice his teaching, right? And even the idea of discipleship. Uh, I heard this recently and I thought it was a really good point. Someone said that in their church, they don't use discipleship anymore. Now they, they use, um, oh, well, of course, now I draw the blank. Um, don't worry, I could edit this part out. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, apprenticeship. Okay, sorry. So apprenticeship. Hopefully that wasn't too long. And he said, the reason we stopped using discipleship is because discipleship for people, at least in the West, means being a student. And students study. Students don't have to practice. So he's saying the difference with having an apprentice is, an apprentice sees the teacher doing something, they learn about it, and then they practice it, and they eventually become a teacher, and they demonstrate, and they do for other people, and they develop others. So it transfers, it moves along, right? It, it requires that you be a participant in the action. And so when we think about how this challenges our morality, dude, are you an apprentice or are you a disciple, right? And again, I don't mean to say that Jesus was wrong when he said disciple. I'm just saying, I think the way we hear that word, we focus so much on study and on head knowledge instead of actually going out and practicing this. And if you think maybe that, maybe I'm kind of making that up, do just ask yourself, how many people do you know? When, when you go through this checklist of the Beatitudes, who do you actually know? Name the person who is poor in spirit in your life. Name the person who is mourning right now. Name the person who is meek, who's hunger and, thir- and hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's merciful, who's the peacemaker in your life, who's the pure in heart in your life, who's the persecuted, persecuted person in your life. And if you can name even a few follow-up questions, what are you doing to care for them? Is your relationship with that person a blessing to them? And don't assume, ask them. Ask them if you're a blessing to them. That's what I'm talking about. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying from a, I'm not talking from a space of like, hey man, I got it figured out and I'm rocking it. If you go and ask my neighbors if I love them the way Jesus loves them, I would hope they'd say yes, but I'm not guaranteed, I'm not guaranteeing they would. But by looking at it from that lens, it calls me to something beyond myself. Let me get into the next two questions. I'm going to combine them. 
And, okay, and then we'll go from there. Uh, what influence should the Beatitudes have on the Christian life? And as a father, how do you teach your kids to live the Beatitudes? Oh, this is the right. Yeah, I'm glad you lumped these together because they do correlate. So at Biola, one of the, I, I honestly, I've always referenced this as like probably the best thing I learned at Biola because it's easy to practice. It was Professor Byersdorf at Biola, and it was my leadership organization course. And he said, does A, B equal A, B? That's the test Christians need to constantly ask or, or put it in front of themselves. And what he meant by that was, do my actions and my behaviors align with my assumptions and beliefs? So going back to this, this teaching of the Beatitudes, do I believe that Jesus loves the marginalized? Yep, I believe that. Do I believe he wants to care for them? And he, he plans on following through on the promises he makes to them. Yep, I believe that. Do I believe that as his body, I'm partly responsible to live that out? Yep. So then I take those assumptions and beliefs I have, and I compare them to how I'm spending my life. Do my actions and behavior reflect those assumptions and beliefs? And if they don't, then you either don't believe those things, you actually don't think that those things are true, or you have to make a change. You have to realign the way you behave and the way you act in life, because that is just, they're non-compatible. Actions and behaviors must correlate with assumptions and beliefs. That is truth. That is, that is character. And that's conviction of spirit. And without that correlation, then dude, you're just talking. And the Pharisees just talked. And we all saw how Jesus responded to that, right? To, to go into the second part of that question, modeling, man. When it comes to my kids, modeling and active love is the most effective thing I can do for them, right? It, it's not, it's, I, I found myself, and I try not to do as much now, but I found myself kind of frustrated with my kids, which they're in the living room right now. So they're, they're peeking at me as I'm talking about them. Uh, I found myself frustrated with them because they're distracting me from the time I'm studying. I'm trying to read a book, I'm reading my Bible, and, and they're distracting me with play. And dude, what am I, what am I, when you take those actions and those behaviors, what am I saying? Am I saying that I love them? Am I saying that I believe God loves them, that they are not a distraction, but they are probably the most real way I experience the fullness of life through Christ Jesus? Well, then I got to change my attitude about that. They're not the distraction, right? My, my commitment to doing this reading right now is the distraction. I'm missing out on the fullness of life Jesus promises me. So this modeling idea is, is what I would say is the most important piece to that. And here's just real life example. There's a guy named Jose who lives on Delamo Boulevard off the 605 freeway on the Delamo exit. We, we go to Seal Beach probably about two times a week to visit my in-laws. What has happened over time has been, we've told our kids the importance of being generous and sharing, right? They have piggy banks that have three separate sections. There's the spend money, there's the, the save money, and then there's the share money. So we've taught them the lesson of generosity for years since they've ever come into contact with money. They've been doing that. But when I tell them about that, it doesn't really transfer. It doesn't transform their hearts. But when we stop at that exit time and time again, and we see this same man sitting there for me to roll down my window give that guy a bag of food and water, ask him his name, ask him his story. Dude, that's what transforms hearts. That's what changes their entire perspective on what it means to love people, to see the marginalized, not just as people we get to serve, but as people, people first, the way Christ saw them. And the reason I know it's transferable is because 
my kids have told my neighbors about Jose. My kids have told uh, my, my mother-in-law about Jose. And now our neighbors and our mother-in-law have bags of food and bags of water. And when they stop at the 605 freeway, they're always looking for Jose. That, to me, that's what Jesus calls out of us. Do it. Do it. Behave and act like people who believe and assume God loves people. I, I really I like that idea, the last one, the modeling. I, I do like the A and B equals A and B because both of those points, man, I could go on for like ever talking about them. But I really think that with the A and B equals A and B, that has to be lined up because you're right. If, if our assumptions and belief doesn't line up with our actions and behavior, then we are just all words. And, and as Christians today, I think that's what the world is tired of seeing is Christians who are all words. Like, where's your show? Where's the proof in the pudding? Which then lines up with modeling because if we're not modeling these behaviors if we're not doing them again as a father myself i totally get you when you're talking about i'm trying to do something and the kids come and disturb me like i just need to get this done kids get out of here and give me a few more minutes i'm I'm there with you on that and especially during this lockdown and being shut in and the kids are homeschooling right now i'm trying to edit a podcast and get this all done and taken care of and they're like hey come do this with me come do that with me what are they going to see? Me being frustrated and saying, get out of here, leave me alone, which happens occasionally. Or are they going to see their father say, you know what, I'm going to take time to spend with you. Because then what I'm teaching them is the behavior of what God our father does takes time to spend with them, to always want to be with them, to help them, to grow with them, to interact with them. And yep. and that example you gave with the guy, Jose, that is perfect, man, because, yeah, our kids can see us talk a talk, but they've got to see us do it. For me, yeah. I take I take notes when I when when someone's speaking, I take notes because my dad did it. I sing during worship because my parents did it. You know, tithing was a thing because my parents did it. Yep. All of that eventually turns in I do it because I see now see the benefit in it. But it it it, it all started off from their modeling. So yeah, that does some really good points, man. Uh, I can see it's close to the time you got to get going. So I'm going to wrap this up and, and maybe we could do a part two later down the road or, or I'm definitely going to have you come back and not do it Zoom. And hopefully when there's not like a saw going off like crazy in the background. Hey man, those landscapers, they're people. They Jesus are. Sees, sees them. Do you see them? Are they inconvenient or are they people, right? No, I'm right, just kidding. Right now they're very inconvenient. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. But, you know, we definitely got to get you back in here. We could do this face to face. So uh, uh, thanks for being on the show, man. Dude, this has been so awesome. I have even just the the times you and I have talked and connected. You've, you've been a friend uh, ever since I met you. You know, there's never been a point in my life. But one of the things I want to say, since this is my Calvary family audience, is, uh, man, I just can't thank God enough for the formative years that that the people of Calvary loved on me and loved on my wife and helped us just to really um, honestly learn how to love Jesus and then build a foundation for that. So dude, I'm just grateful that I can be here and be sharing. It's almost like uh, it feels weird to be teaching Calvary folks when, when uh, I've learned so much from you guys. So thank you, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right. I'm going to sign us out and then I'll, I'll let you go to that, uh, the piano lesson, not for you, right? Boom. No, not for me. Not for me. It's for my daughter. But it's going to be noisy in here in about two minutes. All right. So let's wrap this up. I am Chris for Roger. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Peace. There it is. All right. So I'm just going to hit. Hey, come on down to the Anger Emporium, where you can deal with all that pent-up anger from your day. Get it out. <laughs>
We have tons of rooms to meet all your specific needs. You the type of person that just has to throw something when your blood is boiling? Then try out our fine china room, where you can smash plates, bowls, cups, until all the rage is gone. Maybe throwing things isn't how you deal with that temper, and you just need to smash something. Then try out our junkyard room, where you can take a sledgehammer to a car and release the beast within. And for the music lovers, you must try the Rockstar Room, where you can bash that guitar, flip a keyboard, kick the butt out of a drum set, find your piece as you crush a plethora of musical instruments. But wait, that's not all! Here are some newly added rooms. The Scream Room. Yow to your heart's content. The Ask to Talk to a Manager Room. Give that manager a piece of your mind. The Italian Stallion Room. Get that inner Rocky on and tear up a side of beef. The Home Demolition Room. Smash walls. Smash toilets. Smash showers. Whatever you want. The Fruit Cocktail Room. No fruit is safe from your wrath. The Anger Emporium. We're currently located by the I-5, 101, 233, 15, and 405 Highway and adjacent to the Beef Gristle Mill. So come down and release that unrighteous anger and leave holy. It's the Anger Emporium. Anger Emporium. Anger Emporium. Come down today.